Psalm chapter 29. And while you're opening them um, to Psalm chapter 29, whether you're here in the sanctuary right now or you might be at home watching and uh, participating in worship through your laptop, your TV, your phone, let me remind all of us that next week we are meeting at Lopat Park over in Phillipsburg, New Jersey. And we're meeting Sunday mornings. We're not going to be meeting Saturday evenings for a month and a half. We're opening up the um, opportunity for everybody to come. And so I want to speak particularly to those who are at home and who have not yet come back to the service. Cornerstone, it's time to come back. Amen? Now, I know I'm going to get all kinds of emails this week. Should be a fun week. But I'm telling you, it's time to get back. I want to speak just personally for a second before we even get moving on Psalm 29. We're going to go there. We're going to wrap up the Godson Secrets Identity Series. But I want to just speak personally for a moment. You know what? I believe one of the strategies of the devil right now is to get people comfortable watching church at home and not having to be in fellowship, not having to have accountability. And I'm going to tell you, there are people that have been in Cornerstone for years, I think, or for even months, that are likely never going to be coming back. That grieves me terribly because I've seen it happen over and over. I want to tell you, if you stay on the fringe and if you stay on the periphery, if you think you can be content at home watching these services week after week, you are going to get an emaciated soul. You need to be in God's home. You need to be worshiping God with his people. Now, I hope you're in a growth group. If you're not coming to the services, but you're in a growth group, that's fantastic. That's not enough, but that's fantastic. You need to be in both. You need to be in worship, and you need to be in a growth group. You need to have people coming around you so that you can live out the one another's, and we need to all gather so that we can worship our great God. So I'm going to say it again. Cornerstone, it's time to come back. For most of you, it's time to come back. Now listen, I have an 87-year-old mom up in central New York. You know what I tell my mom? I've told her the same thing for four months. Mom, stay at home. Stay at home and worship. Worship. I don't think she should probably go out right now. But that's my mom, and she's 87. And if you're elderly, and if you have comorbidities, listen, I truly understand it. You probably should. And if you live with the elderly, you probably should stay home and worship. But stay in touch with us. Get in a growth group. Listen to the echo of God as I'm preaching. I don't know if you could hear that at home. My microphone just went reverberating. Um, Hopefully we can get that straightened out. But I'm going to encourage you to come on back. So next week... Lopat Park for all of September, half of October. We've got the whole grassy hillside in front of that amphitheater. You can spread out. You can socially distance. If you want to wear a mask, wear your mask. There's going to be a luncheon right after next week's service. So I'm really going to encourage you uh, to come on out and let's worship as a church. Let's be the church family again. All right, my preamble's done. Are you glad? No. No. <laughs> You know what, I tell you what, wasn't it awesome having Pastor Kyle two weeks ago and Mark last week preach and stand in this pulpit and do such a great job? You know, Mark's been a pastor, I think, almost as long, if not longer than I have, so he's got a lot of experience preaching, and what a delight it was to have both of those men preaching. 
All right, now I'm really done. That was preamble number two. Here we go. Psalm 29. I hope you're in it. If you're not, let's get to it. And I want to just bring out the word like this. We've got statues made in the honor of people. Just think right now. Bring one to mind. Visualize a statue. We've got a whole mountainside carved in the likeness of four men. We have museums filled with art where people stand and they sit for hours looking at these paintings. We have symphony halls where tear-streaked faces listen rapturously. We've got glass cases housing college championship trophies. We've got packed tour buses going to amazing canyons and waterfalls. And all the while, now listen, all the while souls are clamoring and reaching for what fills us with wonder. It is our design. Do you know that? That you are created to desire what is greater than you, to be held in awe of great things, to have a heart full of wonder. And in fact, it's a very sad day when you lose that wonder, which, by the way, wasn't that the main point in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia? God has designed us. He has designed in us a deep, inescapable, internal drawing to what is greater than us. Now, I want you to really think about that. You're looking at it on the screen. You have a design, Christian brother and sister, even if you're not a Christian, you've got a design in you. You cannot escape it. It is built into you. You are hardwired to hunger for, to desire, to be gravitating towards things or something that is greater than you. And when you find it, it fills you with wonder. It fills you with awe. And this is God's handiwork. He has hardwired our souls to want to behold his glory. And all the wonder in this creation and in this life, they are just appetizers. They are mere hors d'oeuvres. They are previews. They are snippets of what we truly, truly yearn for. We've been created to appreciate, to love, and desire the glory of God. Now, I want you to hear something because this is going to really uh, be the platform for this whole message. You just heard me tell you that we are created to appreciate, love, and desire the glory of God. Now, listen to this. All the wonders of this creation point to his magnificent glory. All of them. We are imbued, we are imbued with glory sensors, and they are activated in a sunset. They are activated when you see the color of a flower, you hear the melody of a song, the power of a strong wind graces your face, you're in the midst of a violent storm. All of your glory sensors that God has hardwired you in with are tingling, they are receiving it, and they are wanting to direct it somewhere, and some, unfortunately, direct it to Mother Nature, others direct it to man-made responsibility but all of creation directs it in one way only, God. 
But what is the glory of God, and how really does it impact our lives? And that's the main questions that this message is going to try to answer. You're in Psalm 29. It's an ancient song of Israel, and it's all about the glory of God. And if we're going to be impacted by Psalm 29, we have to understand what it really is. Are you ready? It's poetry. The entire psalm is poetry. And when you approach poetry in a sermon, you do not surgically autopsy it with an irrational mind. You just can't approach poetry like that. You have to feel it. And for a lot of us, that's very difficult. Why? Because some of us, probably a lot of us, grew up on the Vulcan homeworld. Does anybody not get the Star Trek reference? Little Spocks we are. So I want you to unleash your inner poet, for the psalm has no request. Did you get this? There are no prayer requests. There are no requests of God in this entire psalm. It is just pure wonder and praise. And here we go in verse 1. So let's all look at it. Let's get into this psalm together. David is writing, and he says this, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Now stop there for a second, because some of you guys are like, okay, where's the word coming that's going to rhyme with beings? That's not the kind of poetry that we're looking at here. Hebrew poetry is actually a lot better, and it's a lot freer than that. Not like roses are red, violets are blue, and you supply your next stanza. Here's what David says. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now, I don't know how many of you have read this before. Psalm 29, you've read this before? Now, if you've read it before, have you ever noticed what David just did? David just actually sent an invitation to the angels. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. He's inviting the angels to come to a worship service, and the ones that he's inviting are the heavenly beings. And for angels, worship is as worship does. This is what they're created for. This is what angels do. Anyone, whether you're a human being or an angel, when you see the majestic glory of God, you will respond by worshiping him. But David's own praise feels thin. It feels insufficient. It feels puny in the face of God's glory. Haven't you ever felt that a testimony of praise that you give in public just couldn't quite get across what you're trying to communicate? It just couldn't quite do it? If you've ever written a song, didn't you ever feel like that song couldn't quite capture what was in your heart? If you've ever told somebody that you love how much you appreciate them, it just, no matter how hard you try, your words just seem to fall flat. They just can't quite get your heart across. This is what's happening to David, I believe. David knows his praise. It's not enough to match God's glory, not enough to 
equal God's worth, he needs a bigger choir. He needs a better band to sing with. So come on, angels, join me, and let's praise our God. That's what's happening in verse 1 and 2. This is what sets Psalm 29 apart, because I don't know really any other psalms that do this. Angels know how to worship. Now, you got to hear this because there's a little bit of a slight rebuke that I'm going to give all of us, me included. They're not conservative Christians. <laughs> you know that about angels, right? They're not Christians who make sure that they better not lift their hands in the air during a worship service. That would be a little bit scary, a little awkward. I think angels are not only lifting their hand, they're probably then following it up with falling on their faces. When's the last time that you actually fell on your face in your worship? They don't stand ramrod straight. They don't, they don't make sure that they don't sway with the music or smile or kneel while singing. They know how to worship. And they know, look what it says, how to ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, meaning to acknowledge with their minds God's supreme worth and greatness. Now, here we're, here's where we can all kind of latch into this a little bit. Because if you're a human being that's here right now, you actually do have a mind, and you do think, and you think all day, and you think all throughout the day. That's why the Bible says we've got to take captive our minds, because our minds don't know the gear selector called park, and they don't really go into neutral. You might think they do, but they're actually not. They're whirring around all the time. And what David is saying is direct your minds like the angels do and ascribe to the Lord, give credit to the Lord, his glory and strength. That's how you worship with your minds, but your minds and your worship is not enough. Look what they do. The angels worship the Lord and they bow before him in the splendor of holiness. Worship is to bow. Did you ever know that? By the way, this is one of the most, I think, um, beautiful, deep, deep rooted definitions of the word worship. It means to lick the hand. It actually was a word for dogs who are so enamored with their masters that they lick their master's hands as they kneel beside them. This is what it means to worship. It means to kneel. It means to bow. In verse 2, it means to bow before God in the splendor of his holiness. It means to submit our will. So we talked about our minds, but now David's talking about the will. It means to voluntarily yield and to bow and to submit before our enthroned and worthy God who is full of glory. He is holy. He's utterly, that means he's in a class by himself. By the way, if anybody ever asks you, hey, what does the word holy mean? Because the church flings it around all the time. What does that word mean? It literally just simply means to be in a class by yourself. It's a word of distinction. So God is better than, higher than, more infinite than, over everything in creation. He truly is in a class all by himself. And when you worship God in his splendor and his distinction, his holiness, then you submit your will to him. If he is that great, then I don't want to live for me. And I don't want to live for any human being more than God. I want him to be preeminent. I want him to be the Lord. I want him to be my king. 
See, this is what the angels do naturally. So David invites them to join his worship because he has seen a glimpse of the glory of God. And I'm going to ask you to try to do something. Next week, when we gather at Lopat Park, it might sound audacious. I don't think that I am being unbiblical and encouraging you on your way to Lopat Park. Pray and invite the angels to join us. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? 10,000 angels from horizon to horizon showing up? That might actually get us moving. Invite the angels. Now, if you think that's heretical, I would just take you back to Psalm 29. David did this. He invites the, the heavenly beings, those are angels, to join them in their worship. And what they worship is God, and why they worship is because they've seen a glimpse of the glory of God. Now, that might be one of the least understood words in all of the Bible. What on earth is the glory of God? Well, I can at least start by helping you understand the glory of God is the display of his divine attributes and his perfections. The glory of God is not actually an attribute. This is the only one in this entire series that is not an attribute of God. This is the sum total of all of his, all of his attributes. This is the radiance of each and all and every one of God's attributes. In fact, in the New Testament, it's the Greek word doxa. If you're a diver, you'd be, a, you'd be familiar. If you're in the Navy, you'd be familiar with the, the doxa light. It's a very bright light that can illuminate even at the depths of the ocean. So a doxa is the glory of God. It's the shining splendor, the radiance of God that comes when he reveals himself in any of his attributes. The word is actually very interesting because the very basic meaning of glory is to be heavy in weight. Heavy in weight. Now, let me explain that. We give weight to an elderly person's opinion. They're older than us. They've got more experience than us. It's one of the ways that we honor that elderly person. They have a very weighty presence in our lives. So that's what it means. It means to give glory to God is to realize that no one is weightier. No one is more preeminent. No one is more significant than God. So we give him all of our attention. We give him all of our adoration. We give him all of our majestic praise. So God's glory is the display of who he is, and if we are to learn to glorify God, it is to respond to that display by worshiping him as the most important being there is. I like what Paul David Tripp said. He said, glory isn't a part of God. It's all that God is. Every aspect of who God is and every part of what God does is glorious, but even that's not enough of a description. Not only is he glorious in every way, but his very glory is glorious. In other words, glory is not an attribute of God. All of God's attributes declare his glory. A creation, by the way, and this is where it gets fun. You ready? From here on out, the message is going to get much more relevant, much more practical, and it begins with understanding this. Creation is the voice of God that is declaring his glory. 
his weighty importance. Did you know that the creation speaks? That it declares? Is this what Psalm 19 means? The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork? Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. So all of creation speaks and it proclaims and it declares. And what is it declaring? That God is glorious, that he is preeminent, that he is over everything, and he is due all fame and all recognition. The glory of God is seen all around us, and David is about to see it in a thunderstorm. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go out the door in your mind. <laughs> I should take you on a field trip sometime. That'd be kind of fun. We're going to go out the door with David, and you've got to pull on your raincoat. If you want to put on a hat, go ahead and do that too, because David is now taking us outside. Look at verse 3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. See, here's what's happening. David, who's in Israel, he's in Jerusalem, likely, sees a storm a violent storm it could even possibly be a hurricane that is coming in off the mediterranean sea it is out over the waters there are flashes of lightning there are peals of thunder and david is writing a psalm a poem to capture the glory of god in the midst of this thunderstorm And God's not actually forming words. Look what it said again in verse 3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. It's not like he's actually speaking in David's language of Hebrew and uh, the rumbles and peals of thunder. This is poetry. There's a bit of a license here. But these storms might, the power, the, the visceral energy of the storm, it's declaring God's glorious power and his sovereignty and his protection. And that storm doesn't stay over the Mediterranean Sea. It begins to move east and it comes inland and it reaches Lebanon, which is north of Israel, verse 5. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. See, Lebanon was famous for their cedar trees, which were symbols of strength of their god. Their god was Baal. And under those trees, those cedar trees, the people of Lebanon, they would worship Baal, who was supposedly, now listen to this, he was the supposed weather god. You see the confrontation that's coming? We've got God that is being declared through this violent thunderstorm. In every peal of thunder, David says, is the voice of God declaring his um, omnipresence, his omnipotence, his sovereignty, his power. And it's coming straight into Lebanon, the home and the center of the false worship of Baal, who's the weather god. And the storm reaches the heights of Mount Hermon, that is Syrian, which is almost 10,000 feet above the sea. And the people of Lebanon and Syrian terrifyingly run for cover like a young calf or a young wild ox. The people are afraid and terrified at the power and the onslaught of this storm. 
The voice of the Lord, verse 7, thunders and the storm flashes forth flames of fire. Now listen, we've had some thunderstorms recently, so you ought in your mind's eye to be able to really understand this poem. Imagine you're outside. By the way, this is where Denise and I, my wife and I, are absolutely polar opposites. Because when a thunderstorm comes up, here's my wife. She closes the blinds on the windows. She tells anybody that's in the shower, hurry up and get out. I don't really understand why. And then she dresses all of our kids in their bubble suits and has a month's supply of water on hand. That's my wife. Me? I go outside. Who's with me on this? I go outside. Every man, nod your head if you're like me. Every woman, shake your head back and forth if you think I'm despicable. Oh, thank you. You're kind. This is what Denise does. That's what I do. But this is the voice of the Lord, and it is thundering, and the storm is flashing with lightning seven times. Find them. Look through Psalm 29. Seven times God speaks in this storm. Seven peals of thunder, and they're all revealing his power and his glory. Now, let's not be surprised that David keeps saying seven times the voice of the Lord. It is how God created all of creation. He did it by his word. He spoke it into existence. It was by his voice that Jesus stilled that storm on the Sea of Galilee. So we've got the voice of God, and it is powerful. And we've got Psalm 29 that David is writing. It works like a Doppler radar tracking the voice of the Lord. And this great storm now turns south. Look where it goes, verse 8. And it shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. Its ferocity strips the trees bare of their leaves. It frightens the doe to premature birth. Everyone, animal, human, they're terrified, all except for God's people in Israel. Everybody else is fleeing in terror, but God's people know where to go in a storm. We gather together, we go to our God, in verse 9, we cry glory, and we worship, and we praise our God. Did you track that storm? Came out over the Mediterranean Sea, came right into Lebanon, right into the peaks of Syrian, came down south, passing Israel, right down southern Israel, east, Kadesh, and all, everybody, destruction in its path, except for Israel. But David is not finished with his poem, for while the storm passes, Look, there's floodwaters, there's swollen rivers, there's creeks that are going over their banks. But there's that sudden stillness that often happens when a violent storm is done. And it is into that stillness that the full power of the psalm enters. Verse 10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood, the Lord sits enthroned as king forever. The earth has been shaken by the voice of the Lord in that storm, but above it all, over it all, sits the Lord on his throne. Do you know who the Lord is? I would not be too quick to say yes if I were you, although you certainly may know. 
The Lord is Jehovah, which is God's name that describes his eternal, faithful relationship with his people. Whenever you see the Lord in the Bible over 6,000 times, it is Yahweh or what became Jehovah, same name. It always means God's faithful, eternal promise to his people. You speak the name, the Lord, it is your password into God's faithful promises for you. But Jehovah goes by another name, and you know it with beautiful familiarity, and that name is Jesus Christ. In fact, Philippians 2 tells us, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. It is to Jesus Christ, the King of kings, that everyone will bow, who sits on the throne forever. It is the Son of God. It is Jesus, Hebrews says, who is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe, look what it says, by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down. Where? He sat at the right hand of the, of the majesty on high. He speaks. His word is power. He sits on the throne, and he presides over every storm that will ever come into your life. It is the voice in the storm commanding it, enthroned above it, displaying his power through it. And the angels are invited to join David and God's people to worship this Jesus, to give him the glory that he is due, what his perfections and his greatness deserve. And then David ends his song of poetry with the greatest message of hope that he could possibly utter. It's the message of the gospel. I want to tell you something about preaching. This is one of your ways that you can hold me accountable, one of your ways that you can hold anybody that preaches at this church accountable. The power of a sermon is the gospel. And a sermon must get you to that gospel. And if the sermon doesn't get you to the gospel, but it tickles your emotions, you will walk out of church going, that was a really good sermon, and then a few days later go, you know what, I don't really understand, though, the impact in my life. It didn't really transform me. See, if you want the power of a preacher to be unleashed in the sermon, the sermon must get to the gospel. And if you ever go to a church that doesn't preach the gospel, you shouldn't probably go to the church. Find a better church, because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So David ends his song of poetry with the gospel. Look what he says in verse 11. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. And you might be wondering, well, where's the gospel? I don't see Romans Road. Where's the gospel in verse 11? Well, do you remember the words of the angel to the shepherds the night of Christ's birth out on that field where they said, that angel said, glory to God 
in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. God gives his peace only one way. Whenever the Bible talks about the peace of God, it can only be had one way. And Colossians tells us what it is. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Jesus to reconcile him to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, here it is, making peace by the blood of his cross. So if you want peace, then the blood of the cross has to make it possible. Now you're in the gospel's territory. See, peace comes by the blood of the cross. Forgiveness, friendship with God found only at the cross. There's no other way for God to forgive than the shedding of the Son of God's blood. Now, let me ask you a question, and I'm almost done. So let's get really, really sober-minded, very, very serious. And I don't take it for granted that every single person here or watching this sermon is a believer. I don't take for granted that you have a friendship with God right now. So let me speak to those who may not. Friends, do you know that the storms that blow into your life The difficulties, the painful experiences are meant by God to speak to you, to invite you to the cross, to see the Lord enthroned on high. That's the purpose of your difficulties. It's to bring you to the cross. And you are being invited along with the angels to ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, to ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, to worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. And you can do that. You can come to the foot of the cross where Jehovah, the Lord Jesus, gave up his life to save you and to give you peace. If you're in the midst of a storm, it's the voice of the Lord. He's the one presenting siding over it. He's the one enthroned above it, and he is bringing it into your life to bring you to the cross so that you can have peace and friendship with God. And the question really is simple, and it remains to be this. Will you bow before Jesus, the King of Kings, who sits on his eternal throne so that you can receive his peace? But Christian, I'm going to end with you, brother and sister. Are you in a storm? Are you in a storm that has blown into your life? Other people are going to run in terror, but we go to the one who sits above the throne. We find him in his temple. We worship him through Jesus. And he is directing the path of that storm. And he is speaking to us through its thunder. And we worship and we give him glory. And while others are terrified, we cry glory. And the result is peace and blessings. Why? Because God is your father. You are his child. And your brother Jesus died on the cross to give you peace. There is no more condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. And there is no greater act of worship than giving all of your life to serving our great God. That's 
the response to the glory of God. You see, God does not keep his identity a secret to his people, for he has revealed himself in Jesus. And Jesus has shown us the glory of God, and he is inviting us to worship him and find his great peace. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, what a psalm. I would confess, though I've read it so many times, Lord, I have never seen what I've seen this past week. What an incredible psalm. Lord, you have so powerfully impressed this through this poem that David wrote. Lord, that you are enthroned above the storm. The storm is your voice. And to the non-believer, your voice is beckoning them. Come to the cross and find peace. There is no other way. And that invitation is open, and it is open even right now, and your voice is beckoning to the Christian to come into the temple and cry glory. Because you are of the most weighty importance in our lives. You are a being in a class by himself. You have distinction over all creation. You are of most importance. You are preeminent, and we owe you all that you are due, and we give you our lives in submission. That's what worship is. Father, we talk about worship all the time. We come here to worship, and we reduce it to singing. It's far more than just singing. It certainly is singing. It certainly is praising you, but it's testifying to your greatness. It is listening with eagerness to your word being preached. It is leaving here and getting on mission and living for your glory and not our own. Lord, it is so bigger than just our singing. But you are glorious, and our response must be to worship you. Father, I pray that you would enable us to do that. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your son. And we lift him up and we cry glory to the name of Jesus Christ today, tomorrow, and forever. And it's his name we pray. Amen.